Hello and welcome to Conversations with Ascend Mum podcast. Today's episode, we are talking to Lou Plunkett, who is a mum of two uh, and visually impaired herself. She helps educate businesses uh, to ensure that they are accessible for the visually impaired community. Season one of Conversations with Ascend Mum is brought to you by the Supersensory Squad, helping young people, parents and educators understand the sensory systems um, and how to emotionally regulate. So Lou, welcome to Conversations with Ascend Mum. Thank you so much. It's really great to be here, Nicole. Thank you for asking me on. Absolutely. Uh, so Lou is a good friend of mine and uh, we actually met for the first time in Spain, didn't we, this year? <laughs> We did, although April seems like such a long time ago now, but it was a great experience and fantastic to actually meet you in person as well. Absolutely. It was it was so good. Um, so can you tell us uh, a little bit about yourself um, and your connection to the SEND community? Okay, so as you've already said, I'm a mum of two. I've got two boys. They are now 17 and 11, and my eldest has autism. We have been on a massive journey, obviously, as any other parent with a child would send will have been on and is probably still going on themselves. Um, But I think what I wanted to really convey is that it can be really tough and it is really tough and challenging. And back when my son was in junior school, so he was kind of year four, year five, there were behaviours and things that were happening at home that were not being picked up at school and he masked so much and it got to the point where I almost left the family home because I felt that the reason he was behaving this way was because of me but then as he got a little bit older he started presenting these behaviors at school and school then believed what I was saying And we went on the whole autism diagnosis journey, which where we live at the time took two and a half years. We got a diagnosis at the end of it. We never went down the EHCP route. We had other stuff going on within our family at the time. And it wasn't something we pursued, particularly having been to a meeting at the high school my son was at and the lady who was the head senko actively discouraged parents from applying because in her words it was a really stressful experience and it might not get you not you might not get anywhere and you know do you really want to go through that so it's like okay you're not going to be particularly supportive so we will do what we can as a family to support our son and he got through high school it wasn't easy for him uh he he struggled massively struggled socially academically he was okay he could have achieved greater if he had had the right support in place and I had to fight for it thankfully GCSE years it did kick in um during lockdown he literally got forgotten and dropped off the radar for the school he was so overwhelmed there was during the first lockdown after the Easter holidays he had 30 pieces of work due in on the first day back and he'd done none of them. He wasn't submitting anything, but nobody was following up. Um, but, you know, during GCSE years, when he was back in school, he got some support. He got through his GCSEs, 
And then we had the whole post-16, you know, what, what are we going to do? What's he going to go? What does he want to do? And he didn't know. All he knew was is that he wanted to work with cars in some capacity because that was, you know, that was his passion. That was what he enjoyed. So he decided not to stay on at sixth form. He went to our local FE college and the course he originally applied for was pulled and he was then put onto a different one, which still involves an element of cars and, you know, mechanics, that type of thing, but it wasn't what it cracked up to be. So for the first two weeks that he was at college, he doesn't cope well with changes to routines, new things, new environments, new people. He didn't speak to anybody for two weeks. None of his peers in his class he would speak if he was spoken to by the tutors. But beyond that, he he just got through. He survived, essentially. Then he started having conversations and, you know, he, he made a couple of friends with other lads on his course. Um, they didn't live locally, so there was no kind of social interaction outside of college, which suited him fine because that's not, not what he does. But he wasn't happy. He still wasn't happy. It wasn't what it had kind of cracked up to be, what he had been led to believe that the course would be about. So he started looking at apprenticeships and he applied for a number and he had a couple of interviews. Some were just like preliminary telephone interviews, which for him were really difficult and those didn't regress. But he then had a random text message actually in April of this year to say that could he call to make an appointment for an interview with a large dealership that we have got where we live. And he went along for that interview. He wore his prom suit again, which, you know, again was, a, was something else that we never thought he would go to his, end, you know, his year 11 prom because he doesn't like that kind of thing. But he, he was adamant he wanted to go and he did. So he wore his prom suit again and he got offered the apprenticeship. And eight months in now, he absolutely loves it. He is so happy and he's actually said himself that he is the happiest and most relaxed that he has been since he has been about age eight. And wow. He's so there is light at the end of the tunnel. Yeah. I think you find what your child loves and is passionate about. And if you can turn that into a job or, you know, a career option for them, it can just, it's just like switching the lights on for them. Um, and you know, he, he's told by um, kind of his workshop manager at work. So he's on a three year apprenticeship to become a service technician, which is mechanic and old money, um, that he, he's doing more than he needs to be as, a, as an apprentice. And he's just like, but, you know, I'm just doing my job. I mean, I'm doing what I'm enjoying. And he loves it. And, you know, and he's engaging in banter in the workshop as well, which for him, he never got jokes. He didn't have that kind of toing and froing with at school because he didn't understand it. But now he's like running jokes by us about his colleagues. And he's just like, can I say that? And I'm like, well, if you think you can get away with it, then, you know, it's going to be taken, <laughs> taken in good humour. Then, yeah, why not? And he's he's thriving. He really is thriving. He loves it, which is just, yeah, such a relief. Yeah. Like that's so amazing. So amazing to hear and encouraging for us, 
you know, so my my son is seven. So it's encouraging to hear that from someone who has an older child who has gone through all of that and is now absolutely thriving in the apprenticeship. Like that is such an encouragement. And I'm sure for many of you listening, that will be uh, really encouraging for you too. Um, I just want to head back onto one of the points that you said, because again, I think it will really resonate with a lot of people listening. Um, the fact that, you know, at one point you didn't feel like anyone was believing you, that you thought it was you and you thought that actually it was better if you left because no one was believing you. How, you know, taking you back to that point, how would you, what advice would you give to someone who is feeling like that now? I think trust your instinct, trust your gut. Um, for me at the time, my husband had a different job. So he was working long hours. He was away a lot. And by the time he would come home in the evening, the huge meltdowns that my son would have had passed. So he never witnessed them. <clears throat> and then on the odd occasion that he would, maybe at a weekend, would, you know, you know, it's just, just normal behavior. You know, all kids do that. And I'm just like, this is happening on a daily basis. I would dread the moment he woke up in the morning and it'd be like walking on eggshells and kind of trying to keep everything calm in the household, trying to keep his little brother out of the way so that he didn't antagonize him or say something wrong or look at him wrong to kind of, you know, set off and belt down before he went to school. And then when the front door opened after school and he came in and he literally hurled his school bag down the hallway would come up to me and be literally inches from my face and just screaming, shouting, letting it all out because he'd held it in all day at school. And then once it was done, you know, yes, he had lots and lots of other little quirks and stuff, but yeah, I, I just literally felt like it was me. I, I was the reason because I'm not realizing and understanding that I was his safe space. You know, I was his safe person that he could be himself with. So I think, you know, trust your instincts and find somebody, whether that be a TA, a teacher, your GP, another healthcare professional who will actually listen to you and not fob you off and just takes that time to, to really listen and hear what you're saying, and then be prepared to support you in that. That makes such a big difference. You know, we know the health profession is just so overstretched. There's very limited resources, but there are still good people out there. And it was it was actually a teacher that my son had in year five said to me on a parents' evening. He's like, I, he's like, there's something there. He said, you need to to pursue it. He said, I'm not qualified. He said, but I can see that there is something there on the autistic spectrum. And it was in the kind of the ball rolling. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that because, you know, it, it must've been really tricky at that time, but it's very encouraging to now see that when someone listened to you and then now seeing how he's, how he's thriving in his apprenticeship. Uh, which is which is great that's what we want isn't it for our kids to yeah, thrive absolutely. like uh, that is the that yeah that is the dream that is that is what we want so it's great whatever they their passions are like you said it's honing on the honing in on them 
uh, and helping them with that. So, um, so that's really good. Which which they don't get the opportunity to do at school because you know everything is so pigeonholed, and it, it's very much dictated to. I mean, w- I looked at taking him out of school and going down the whole home education route, but because I don't drive because of my visual impairment. There's a massive network in our county where we live and you could go to different activities, morning, afternoon, evening, seven days a week. I couldn't get to any of them. So it's like home education isn't an option for us. So he's got to stay within the school system and somehow survive it. Yeah, that that's a tricky situation to be in. Like you said, you, you and, and that takes us on to, you know, thinking about actually as a visually impaired person, um, you know, what were your experiences um, as a child, um, as an as an adult now, and how can the SEND community um, support and, and be aware? I suppose it's raising that awareness, isn't it? Since I met you, um, you have, you know, brought things to my attention that I didn't even think about, or I didn't think that certain things were ex- were accessible or not to those who are visually impaired. So I'm very grateful <laughs> to you to help me uh, and many others ensure that the things we share on social media or the things in daily life are more accessible. My eye condition is genetic and I was 15 when it was finally diagnosed. So I was in year 10 at high school. I just kind of started on on my GCSEs and my school were really great with me. Um, You know, I was the only person in the school with a visual impairment, you know, back in the 90s. We didn't have the internet. You know, we had one computer at school which had the internet. Um, So it, it wasn't something that you could kind of go and Google because that type of information wasn't out there. So it's not like... You know, nowadays you get given a diagnosis. The first thing you do is you go and Google it, don't you? You couldn't do that back then. You were literally on, you know, completely in the dark and left to fathom things out for yourself. So I think my my experiences back then was it was relief at finally getting a diagnosis. Um, and then there was a whole like roller coaster of emotions, and you know. It's tough when you're a teenager figuring out who you are, let alone adding in a hidden disability as well. So yeah, that's a whole other story for another day and another podcast. Actually, you've written about your story, yeah. haven't you, in uh, Letters to My Teenage Self, Volume 2. Um, so that is available on Amazon and people can read your story as well as my story and a variety of others. Yeah, absolutely. So I think... I've managed, I've kind of got through life and sort of, you know, went to college. Um, I've done all the things most people do. Um, I developed a chronic illness at the age of 19. So I've never had a full time job because I've had to balance my energy levels with, you know, normal day to day stuff. Um, and I, th- I think it really, you know, online has always been difficult and it's always been a challenge. Yes, I've got some low vision aids to help me, but they only go so far. But I think what really highlighted the digital accessibility issue was lockdown. And when everything transitioned to being online. So I'd, I'd had obviously difficulties with all of the letters from school that you get 
and you know when my son was a in my eldest son was at infant school you know you actually got printed letters back then nowadays everything's emailed but you got printed letters and it's like I can't read that so I'd be forever going into the office asking them could you send that large print to me please and they'd just be like oh um yeah and yeah or there would be a, a notice up at the classroom window for parents something that you had to bring in and I'd never see it and it would only be if one of the other parents, you know, somebody was mentioning it and I overheard because I didn't openly share about my visual impairment because I wasn't comfortable. I felt embarrassed and ashamed about it. And it's only been in like the last four or five years that I've kind of publicly come out, as it were, about yeah. it. And But then that's opened, you know, it has made life easier, but it also again, highlights the the gaping holes in systems and the online world everywhere. So when we went into the first lockdown, my youngest school, sorry, my youngest son had just started junior school. So he was in year three. So I was having to sit with him every day to do his schoolwork that was set online. And the work that was set was you was written in a handwriting font because that was a program that the school had bought into and everything they produced was written in that font for the children and I couldn't read it so I'm struggling to try and support my youngest son with his home learning my eldest son has been forgotten about by the high school system and he's struggling with overwhelm and the workload and nobody checking in on him so I can't divide myself in two and my husband was working from home he was a teacher so he was sat in our camper van on the drive that was his became his like digital virtual classroom (laughs) wow I I don't know what to do so you know we we did the best we could you know and I said to the school a number of times can you put this in a in a different font because I can't read it and their answer was no that's just how it is wow so, you know, my son was having to read me the work and I'm like listening and trying to interpret it myself and then support him with what he was doing. Yeah, it, it was it was tough. It was tough. <laughs> and, you know, when things eased and sort of, you know, children went back to school, obviously then letters were coming home online you know they, they'd be emailed which was much better for me because I could make them bigger on my iPad screen to be able to read them and to kind of find out what was going on and then I started relying more and more on my screen reader to read like bigger chunks of text to me but a screen reader can't accurately read handwriting font or script or cursive font so then the information is garbled and it doesn't make any sense so it is getting and you know I had then a conversation with somebody and they were just like do you know what we've worked with lots of organizations businesses like massive businesses all over the world they never talk about accessibility and it's like and it's just like okay yes I'm only one voice but if nobody talks about it then nothing will ever change so I'm on a bit of a, a bit of a mission to educate <laughs> educate the business world in yeah. what they can be doing and what they need to be doing. Actually, not not it's not something that's nice to do. It's something that's essential to do in order to not exclude, you know, the visually impaired community. And there are millions of us globally from what you're putting out there online because you don't know who in your audience 
has that need for you to be accessible. Yeah, and I think it's, you know, like I said, you've opened um, thoughts up that I had never thought about before. Um, And so that accessibility piece all over everyone should be thinking about it um, and I'm glad you're on a mission <laughs> to tell everyone about it and I you know I stand by your mission and I'm sure many because you know if you're listening here and and sh- you know you have a child who is visually impaired then you know thinking about them and accessing the online world is definitely something that um, you know we want everyone to be able to access and so Lou is is gonna ensure that uh, that your kids can access that um, for sure yeah I mean a classic example would be you know if you went to your GP and whether it's for you or for your child how often do you come away or if you go to the hospital how often do you come away with something that's been photocopied as like an information leaflet for you very often that is a photocopy of a photocopy of a photocopy it's so grainy it's not centralized you know it's 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 skew if essentially so it's been photocopied so often it's not even straight on the paper so if you're then using a magnifying glass it's so grainy that it then you can't read it so it's not accessible and there's a huge campaign at the moment by the RNIB to make the NHS and anything medical related so leaflets your medical records anything like that accessible for all and you shouldn't have to to necessarily ask for it it should be on your notes that this is a re- yeah. this is a requirement i mean the one that always gets me as well is i go to morfield eye hospital in london anyone who goes is under an eye clinic if you go for a checkup you will have um you'll get sent a letter your appointment letter you'll get told that you'll be having dilation drops for your eyes so therefore you can't drive after you've had these drops now I've never been able to drive. I was told at 15 that I'd lost too much sight to be able to drive. And at the time I had a part-time job, I was saving my money for driving lessons and to buy my first car. So that like dream was snatched out from under me. I've got used to those letters now, but a person who maybe is newly diagnosed and maybe has just lost their driving license and to receive a letter like that, that's just like ripping the Band-Aid off all over again and just reigniting that trauma and all of those emotions and those feelings and it's just like it comes from an eye clinic you can see from your records it should be on the system that that person is registered as sight impaired or severely sight impaired in which case they're not going to be able to drive so just take that out of the letter so as not to yeah just cause that upset and you know unnecessary trauma yeah. Yeah, that's a really good point. Like they definitely should. Um so if anyone from Moorfield <laughs> Hospital is listening or any any eye any, clinic in any department any across the country. Exactly. Yeah, it's it's just a standard letter and it's just like yeah. They need to be adapted. Yeah. Absolutely. Um so just as we kind of wrap up, um can you share something uh with with the send parents listening um to encourage mm-hmm. and inspire? Oh, that's a tough question. (laughs) (laughs) And I even sent questions across beforehand. (laughs) You did. I must have missed that one when I was reading it or listening to it. Oh, (sighs) I think it would be just keep going. 
no matter how exhausted, how downtrodden, how overwhelmed you feel, just keep going, but reach out for help and support. And it doesn't necessarily have to be support from, you know, the medical people or, you know, the Senko at your child's school or wherever it might be. It could be, and I highly recommend that you do, is to tap into a SEND community of other parents because you'll learn so much from each other. You can support each other. And just by talking to other parents who are going through a similar journey to yourself, you don't feel like you are alone. And I think for me, you know, looking back, I felt so alone. I didn't feel heard by the school. Um, yeah, I felt like I was fundamentally doing something wrong. and I didn't have that support network of people because I didn't know what I was dealing with. I didn't know, you know, if I thought, well, if I ask for help, is it going to reflect badly on me as a parent? Am I doing something wrong? Am I then going to be judged? And then social service is going to get involved. So you tend to kind of hold it all in. But I think if you can find that community, you know, it doesn't have to be massive. It could just be another send parent at school or somebody you meet online, a, a stranger in a Facebook community group. It can make such a difference just to know that you're not by yourself. Yeah, absolutely. And and that's, uh, you know, that's what we're hoping with this podcast as well. You know, you're hearing from Lou today, you're hearing from other mums throughout each week, each Wednesday, you know, knowing that you're not alone uh, makes makes a big difference, um, especially like I found at the start uh, of the journey of, you know, when my son was first diagnosed with epilepsy, for example, just being like, what? I don't know what to do, where to go. Um, and and so it's really important. And actually, uh, what you can do. So hopefully, you you, um, you know will subscribe to this podcast. But you can also join uh, our Patreon community uh, for where there'll be extra resources and support. And Lou kindly is going to be providing a resource uh, based around accessibility for you in that in that community where we as send mums can be together knowing that we are not alone um, and then having some helpful resources in there to support you on your journey as well. So thank you, Lou, for that. And so where can people connect with you, Lou? Okay, so I am on Facebook. Um, I have a Facebook group on there called Impact um, Accessibility Business Support Hub. So you can find me there. You can connect with me directly on Facebook. I'm also on Instagram at impact.with.lou. And I'm also over on LinkedIn as Louise Plunkett as well. Thank you so much for sharing with us today, Lou. It's been really great to hear hear from you, a variety of different perspectives. Um, and thank you for you to listen who are listening um and thank you to the super century squad for sponsoring season one of conversations with the send mum and we'll see you next week <laughs>